to Leviticus chapter 19. Will, uh, who's doing the slides? Mac, is that you up there, buddy? Michael Waugh. Hey, do we still have those slides from last week about the chiasm? Are those still on there? You can tell we have a real professional operation around here. If we don't, it's okay. I was just wondering. And I'm a little nervous about this water, considering what has happened with the flooding situation. I'm going to come down and get my own cup. I don't think you guys want me to... You wouldn't want to lose me like that, would you? All right. All of this is being recorded, by the way. Okay. So you remember last week, we said that Leviticus... Chapters 18 through 20 uh, are a chiasm. If you weren't here last week, a chiasm is just a, a kind of structure in Hebrew thought. You see it in the Psalms. You see it all throughout the Bible. You see it in Jesus' teaching. It's kind of like in the first line, here's one idea. In a second line, here's another idea. And then the third line revisits the first idea. That's an oversimplification, but that's the basic idea. That can happen in just a couple of verses, but it can also happen with entire chapters in your Bible. So last week we said that Leviticus 18, 19 and 20 were chiasms. And Leviticus 18 is dealing with sexual immorality, the prohibitions, and Leviticus 20 is dealing with the punishments for those sexual sins. We preached on that last week, 18 and 20. And we said this week we would come back to this middle chapter, Leviticus 19, which is all about loving your neighbor or the chapter on justice. So that's why we're in Leviticus 19 this week. Are you guys with me? Oh, that wasn't very good. Are you guys with me? Yeah. All right, all right. Um, now, here in the book of Leviticus, the people of God, Israel, under the Old Covenant, they're preparing to enter into the Promised Land. And God is calling them to remember that they must be holy even as He is holy. You can see that in verse 2. Look with me in Leviticus 19, verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That is the main point of this morning's sermon, as it was the main point of last week's sermon, and the sermon in Leviticus before that, and it'll probably be the same point next week. Be holy, even as I am holy. Now, last week we saw that God was telling his people, Hey, you have to be holy like me in your sexuality. You can't be like the pagan people around you and adopt all their pagan sexual practices. This week, I'm calling you to be holy like I'm holy in matters of justice, how you treat one another in society. If you're thinking, oh man, this political landscape, everyone's talking about social justice, and I come here and I'm visiting in your church for the first time, and I'll look at you, you're talking about justice just like everyone. Well, friends, we didn't plan this. It's just we're walking through the book of Leviticus, and guess what? Justice stuff is in the Bible. So here we are. Now, there are two words that summarize what this morning's text is all about justice and righteousness. As you navigate the pages of Scripture, you'll tend to find these two words very frequently paired together. That's what you might have heard the phrase, it's called a hendiadis. If you haven't heard that, it's okay. It just means where two similar ideas are paired together. So an example of that would be nice and cozy, right? Those are two ideas that are basically similar. There's a lot of overlap, and where there's not an overlap of meaning, there's a mutual reinforcement, okay? So 
We read, for example, in Psalm 89.14 about God himself. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So there's that righteousness and justice together talking about God and who he is in his nature. And so we see that God is a just and righteous God, and he's calling his people to be like himself. He wants them to be just. So you see in verse 15, go down there with me. Verse 15, it says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So it's a contrast between injustice negatively and righteousness positively. The same two ideas right there in the same breath. Okay? Now, what I'm about to say is a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's, I think it's good enough. So note takers, if you want to take a little bit more extensive notes, righteousness is a state of being. Righteousness is about being in right relationship. Now, as Christians, ultimately our concern is that we're in right relationship with God, right? But in this chapter, righteousness is dealing in our right relationships with other people around us. Now, justice is what allows us to be in a state of right relationship with our neighbor. And the heart of biblical justice is giving people what they deserve. I'm going to say that 50 times uh, more throughout the rest of the sermon, but it's about giving people what they deserve. So that's about giving a criminal an appropriate punishment, not too much, not too little, but rather exactly what they deserve. It involves giving an agreed-upon wage, not too much, not too little, but exactly what the job deserves. It's about making sure that those who bear the image of God receive appropriate provision because of who they are. Now, in this morning's sermon, you may hear me use the word justice more than righteousness, but just know it's kind of an unspoken hendiatus. And so if I say one, I'm probably meaning the other as well, depending on the context. Anybody lost yet? No? Good. Now, let's talk about Steve Freeman. Steve Freeman has told me that he likes to keep things simple. Whenever we talk about theology stuff, he's always like, hey, man, let's just keep it simple. And I love that, right? Uh, if Steve's life was a movie, Simple Man by Leonard Skinner would be just on repeat for the soundtrack. And Michael, do we have any Leonard Skinner queued up for the sermon this morning? No? Okay, all right. We didn't plan that. Uh, if you really wanted to simplify this justice stuff, uh, you could just say what verse 18 says. Look there with me. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the simple version of what it means to be just and righteous. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who doesn't like things to be as simple as they can be? Nevertheless, sometimes when you shoot for simplicity, when that's your aim, you can tend to sacrifice some precision. and There's some clarity that you may be lacking. So, for example, you may be wondering, well, Sean, who is my neighbor? A less than careful reading of this morning's text might lead you to believe that for the Israelites, their only neighbors were other Israelites. So look with me at chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, so same verse, 
or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see that? He says you, you, you don't do this to your own people, to other Israelites, but you're supposed to love them as yourself. And so you can walk away from that verse thinking that for the Israelites, the only people who were their neighbors were other Israelites, other people in the same tribe. This might be the kind of uncareful reading of Scripture that would lead Jesus later to have to tell a parable about the Samaritan in order to drive home the point that that's not in fact true. But if you read more carefully, you'll see a better understanding. Look at verse 34. You shall treat the stranger, so the non-Israelite who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So you love your fellow Israelites as you would yourself, and you love people who are not Israelites as you would love yourself. As we learned back in our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, your neighbor is anyone, that any image bearer that God brings into your relational sphere. Your waitress at the restaurant, your cashier, the poor man begging on the side of the road, the rich banker, your pastor, your wife, your husband, your children, your second cousin, third, three times removed on your aunt's side. All of them are your neighbors. So what does it look like to love your neighbor as God's chosen people. I've got eight points for you this morning in order to answer that question. Now, I saw the look on a couple of your faces just now. They're not going to be eight long points. And let me also help you out here psychologically so I don't lose you before I get started. The first two points are going to be the longest and then the last six are going to be kind of rapid fire, okay? But hey, listen, guys, I know that if I was going to preach with eight long points, you guys would be down to stay with me here until three. I know that you would. Amen. All right. So I'm going to give you these eight points, kind of rapid fire, but I'm going to give them to you again as we go. Justice for the poor. Justice for the rich. You can just write justice for dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Justice for the poor. Justice for the rich. For the alien. For women. For disabled. For the consumer. For the family. And for God. Now, if you didn't get all those, I'll give them to you again as we go. So point number one, justice for the poor. If you sit down and read Leviticus 19 in one go, you'll notice that the vast majority of those who are being protected by these commands from God are those who can very easily be taken advantage of. You think about the sojourners, the disabled, and so on. But perhaps no group has been more disenfranchised throughout history than the poor. Now friends, that's not liberal propaganda. That's just the Bible. That's just a plain reading of history. No group has been more historically disenfranchised than the poor. And you see it all over the pages of the Bible. So let me just give you some examples of the way that God talks about how the poor suffer oppression. Amos 4.1 Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Classic burn from God there, by the way. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Isaiah 10, 1 through 2. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. James, from the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. 
Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? So what's happening here? As God's people prepare to enter into the promised land, which we learned last week would still have Canaanites in their midst, they would be around pagans, he wants them to show the watching world, all the lost peoples around them, what it looks like to belong to Yahweh. And one of the things that Yahweh does is care about the poor. And so God says, you be holy even as I am holy. And one of the ways that you're going to show your holiness is you're not going to treat the poor the way that those people treat the poor. You're going to care for the poor because I care about the poor. Look at verse 15. You just see, I'm just going to show you one example and then we'll go on and do some other examples. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor. So you can certainly imagine how easy it is for those with no money, which means that they don't have any resources, to be taken advantage of in a court system. They don't have the ability, you can just think about it in our own modern times, right? I don't have an ability to hire the right kind of lawyer who's actually going to argue the law well on my behalf, Here God is speaking to judges or other people who may be involved in this legal process in ancient Israel, and he's saying, listen, you don't show partiality against the poor just because they don't have anything to offer you. Justice is blind, and it shouldn't make decisions about what is just and right and true based off of race or age or gender or ability or wealth and income. Now, you can see God's concern for the poor elsewhere in this chapter. Look with me. At chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 9 through 10. These are called the reaping laws. When you reap the harvest of your land, and for those of you who are not agriculturally inclined, that's when you go to get all the fruit and all the wheat and all the stuff that you've been growing. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So God says, you have a big old square field here full of stuff like grapes or, or wheat or whatever, okay? And you're going to go and try to get, as, as a producer, all that you can possibly get out of that area. I'm telling you, you should leave a margin of the wheat or the grapes or whatever it is that you're growing for the poor, Moreover, you know that when you're out there picking grapes and getting the wheat and all that stuff, that a lot of times it falls on the ground. And if you're really industrious and you really want to make as much as you can off these crops, you're probably going to make a second pass through and get the last little bit of grapes that you forgot about on the vines and you're going to try to pick it all up off the floor. And I'm telling you, don't do that. Leave it on the ground for the poor and the sojourners among you. The principle here is that the poor are image bearers of God and they don't deserve to die of starvation in your midst. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the sermon. Now, you can also see God's love for the poor in verse 13. Look there with me. It says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. And then he goes on to talk about caring for the deaf. Well, what's going on here? Well, in the Torah, sunset was the end 
of the workday for the laborer. So in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 15, God specifically commands the foreman, or the one who hires these day laborers, to pay their laborers by sunset because they're counting on it. They're so poor that if you don't give them what they deserve for their work, they're really going to suffer for it. So you read in Deuteronomy 24, Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Friends, this is not an exhaustive list of ways that you can take advantage, ways that you can take advantage of the poor. It's not even an exhaustive list of ways that you could take advantage of the poor in the days of ancient Israel. There are so many different ways that poor people can be oppressed. And the point is, God hates all of them. Now, let me give you a word of warning before we move on to point two. It is very common for Christians who rightly see in God's word a need to love the poor and care for the poor. It's all too common for them to make a straight line from those biblical principles to their own pet politics and policies. They make a straight line from things that are abundantly clear in Scripture to things that are not quite so clear in this political world, in a world that has been corrupted by sin. Moreover, a careful study of the history of poverty alleviation efforts will show you that those who tend to be most desirous of helping the poor advocate for policies that self-evidently seem good for the poor that actually end up doing the poor tremendous damage and harm. Now, I'm not going to launch into a seminar about which policies and laws I do or don't think are most helpful. That's not what this sermon is about. I simply want to remind you that we should be very desirous of uh, being obedient to the principles that we see in God's Word in in texts like these, but we must not let our desire to do these things become too entangled with what we think is the best thing to do politically because it will not produce good fruit in our lives and it will certainly create disunity in the life of the church. Okay, point number two. Justice for the rich. Justice for the rich. Uh, The ideologies that were advanced by men like Karl Marx and Frederick Engels are responsible for more death destruction and oppression of the poor over the last 200 years than any government in the history of the world. Their ideas are responsible for more damage and death to the poor in the world than all of the wars of the world combined. And it's not even close. Now the heart of Marx and Engels' theory was that the whole of the human race is divided into two categories, the oppressed and the oppressor. Now, Marx and Engels saw the whole world falling along those lines economically. So the oppressed are the poor. The oppressors are the rich, the ones who own the means of production. Now, while it is generally true, as we said earlier, that the poor are more often than not oppressed at the hands of the rich in this fallen world, this is an overly binary way of thinking about oppression and justice, and it's just not true, and it's certainly not biblically faithful. One place that you can see a more holistic version of what justice is, is in this morning's text. Let's look for the third time this morning at verse 15. Go back with me and look there. So, you shall do no injustice in the court, 
And obviously, you should not be partial to the poor. But then it says, or defer to the great, but in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not be partial to the poor. Now, I said obviously, but you're thinking maybe that's not so obvious. You have to stop and think about who the Israelites were. Where did they come from? Israelites were slaves for hundreds of years. They were the poor. They were the oppressed. God takes them. He calls them out of that. He makes them into a people. He gives them his law. And then he calls them to be a just society. But how easy would it be for a people who have come out of this oppression for so long, who have been the poor for so long, now all of a sudden there's a court that comes before the judge to be decided, and the judge, who should be judging justly, takes the side of the poor against the rich, even though the rich is the one who's in the right. In this scenario, who is the one who's being oppressed? The poor man is wrong. His claim is false. Yet nevertheless, God renders the judgment on behalf of the rich. Friends, that is injustice as well. That is sin as well. Now in the West, we love the story of Robin Hood, you know, steal from the rich and give to the poor, that kind of thing. But that's not the way that sin works. That's not the way that God's idea of justice works. If you steal from the rich, that is sin. History tends to go through cycles, you know. And one of the cycles that we have recently revisited in the West and in America is a populist hatred for the rich. But brothers and sisters, you have to know that the rich are members of the kingdom of God as well. Now, it's true. Jesus did say that it's difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. And to that, we say amen. And that's why every single person in this room needs to be on guard because we are all rich, relatively speaking. But Jesus didn't say that there were no rich people in the kingdom. You look throughout the pages of Scripture. They're replete with people who are very wealthy. You can just look at the church history and you see wealthy saints who have done the world tremendous good and who have done the church in particular great good. Rich people sowed into the ministry of Jesus. Rich Christians supported Paul's missionary journeys. Rich Christians pay for wells and build hospitals and pay off debts and support seminaries and pay for eternities for pastors who are being persecuted and they fund programs for at-risk youth and they pay for church plants and it was a rich Christian who paid my salary so I could come to this church and, and try to be your pastor when there was no money to pay a pastor. Rich people matter. We tend to feel like it's okay for the rich to be treated unjustly because they're rich. We feel like they've had enough good things coming to them in life. This is the kind of thing that'll keep them humble, keep them on their toes. A little injustice will do them some good. But God does not feel that way. The wealthy are image bearers of God as well. And Lady Justice does not peek over her blindfold before rendering her judgment on the rich. Point number three, justice for the alien or the immigrant or the sojourner. The concept of race is a relatively new idea in the history of human thought. Our modern world is uh, very obsessed with race and America has a terrible evil history along racial lines and so we're a racialized society and we tend to view all hostilities 
and injustices in the world through the lens of race. Injustice, however, is more complex than a merely racial phenomenon. It was more complex than ancient Israel. So, for example, the Israelites were not merely an ethnic people. They were not merely a religious entity, nor were they merely a political body. They were all three of those things, and each part of their multifaceted identity was bound up inextricably with other aspects of their identity. In the ancient world, hostility towards sojourners and aliens, as we would call them today, was not a monocausal phenomenon. That means it wasn't just one thing that caused the hostility. There were a number of different reasons why one tribal people would have oppressed a sojourner in their midst. And at the end of the day, God tells his people that they must love their fellow, they must love the sojourner in their midst in the same way that they love themselves. We saw that earlier in verse 34. Now, what you have to know about this idea of loving foreigners as you would love yourself is that it's in the Bible, in the world of the ancient Near East, in the, in the pantheon of competing religions, it was a very unique idea. It's just not the way that the, the, the tribal peoples of the ancient world operated. It was more like, you know, hey, listen, I'm a Canaanite. That guy's not a Canaanite. He wanted to pass through our land. He should have thought about having some food for him to munch on. If he dies, he dies. A very, uh, you know, Rocky Five, Ivan Drago kind of a thing there. And think about, friends, how easy it would have been for a sojourner in the midst of Israel to die. No friends, no family, no resources, no safety net of any kind. God says, no, you, you can't let that happen. You have to love them. Now, there is room for us to disagree, friends, as we try to apply this principle in our modern lives today, about the best way to love the sojourner or the alien or the immigrant in our midst. So let me just give you one example, one, one little uh, flavor of this text that perhaps you, you haven't seen. You'll notice that these gleaning laws do not provide a comfortable living for the sojourners. Quite the contrary. You can be sure that those who went and picked grapes up off the ground as their main source of sustenance were likely malnourished and they were probably often very hungry. But what these gleaning laws do is they put the onus on the people of God to make sure that those who bear God's image in their midst do not die unnecessarily. They may not be fat and happy as sojourners in your midst, but you can't let them die of starvation. That's not what we do. That's not God's heart. One really significant application point I think we should have for our lives uh, from this text is that we need to build margin in our lives to be generous. You see, these gleaning laws, God says you have to build margin into your, into your business production practices so that you have enough left over to, to care for people who may really be destitute and need it. Paul told uh, the churches in the New Testament, set aside at the beginning of every week some money for the offering, for the work that he was doing. That should be your primary concern. The main way that you should set aside some, uh, uh, what's the word I just used? <laughs> huh? There it is. The main way that you should, welcome to our church. Uh, the main way that you should set aside some margin in your life is by giving to the local church for the sake of the gospel and all that that does the world over. 
And if you have the ability to do so, set even more aside so that you can help those who are in need. God may, God may not bring somebody into your life for a year that needs any help. And then he may bring someone who needs a lot of help. And how have you been spending your money and your resources? Have you just kind of been blowing it on everything that you want, every little toy and trinket that you could possibly imagine? You know, your Amazon basket is just boom, 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 boom. And you're just ready to fire off anytime you get an extra dollar. I'm getting that and I'm getting that. Or are you willing to sacrifice a little bit and build some margin in your life so that you can support the work of the Great Commission through the local church and care for the poor that God may bring into your path? Now, one final thing before moving on to point four. These gleaning laws are drawing very clear lines of justice and injustice. Injustice is you don't let these people, just because they're foreigners, die of starvation in your midst. But God is not saying that that's all that you should do for these foreigners in your midst. That's not, the, that's not like the upper ceiling. You, you know, go pick some grapes up off the ground. If we take verse 34 seriously, which he says, love your neighbor as yourself, then you see that the people of Israel would have been free and probably should have felt inclined to do even more for the poor in their midst. If, if I love you like I love myself, I probably don't want to, somebody just to give me enough grapes to stave off starvation. I probably want you to give me a hearty meal. So friends, just because God gives you a lower limit and what is just in generosity does not mean that he's giving you an upper limit. You're welcome to serve and love the poor above and beyond. And I think it would be very Christ-like for you to do so. Point number four, justice for women. Look at verses 20 through 22. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom... A distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him and uh, with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. Friends, uh, I cannot tell you how often verses like these are used, they're brought up in order to try to attack Christianity and say, look at, your, look at your book, it's so evil, it's so full of all these bad things. But this text actually proves the opposite, and I'll show you how. If you remember from our sermon series in the book of Ephesians, we spent two sermons talking about slavery in the Bible. Now, in one of those sermons, we talked about the difference between chattel race-based slavery, which we have experienced here in America, and Greco-Roman slavery, which was basically just as evil, just in a different part of the world and not race-based. And then we talked about Hebrew slavery, the kind that's found here and that was legislated in the Old Testament. And one of the things that we saw during that time is that what we translate as the word obed as slavery in the Old Testament is very complicated. It's very multifaceted. You could have been a Hebrew slave if you were a prisoner of war. You could have been a Hebrew slave if you had some kind of poverty alleviation that you needed. And you could have been a slave as a form of debt repayment. What we now know of today, which was common, commonly practiced in the West up until very recently, bond service. Now these verses are addressing a young woman who is a bond servant. She could have become a bond servant in a number of different ways. It could have been that her family was very poor and they couldn't have taken care of her. So they sent her to go be with a wealthier family who would love her and take care of her. Uh, and uh, she would be in their service. It could also be that this is a young woman who borrowed a debt, and now she couldn't repay it, and so she's working off that debt as a bondservant. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. 
But what we do know is that under the old covenant, bond servants were not property in the way that we think of people being property in like chattel American, in the chattel American slave system, okay? They were not owned in permanent fashion. They were to be released after seven years if they couldn't pay off their debt in that time. Uh, they could not be physically abused or taken advantage of sexually. And that's what these verses are addressing, a woman who's being taken advantage of sexually, okay? So these verses specifically address a very specific scenario of a female bondservant who is betrothed to another man. Now, that word betrothed, it might be a little foreign to you, okay? It's kind of like engagement to us, but much stronger. It's like you're basically married, okay? That's how it worked in the ancient world. So this young woman is betrothed to another man, and then her master takes advantage of her sexually. As we saw last week, the sin of adultery, which that is what this would be under different circumstances, that sin was punishable by death, the death of the man and the death of the woman. But verse 20 here says that a distinction must be made. Well, what, what distinction? What this, the distinction is, is that she wasn't free. She was a bondservant. She was not in a position where she could really give consent to this man for this sexual activity. And so, therefore, justice demands that you don't punish her in the way that you would punish a freed woman. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that, that these bondservants in the Old Testament, if their masters abused them and it was found out, they were to be set free. It's very likely, friends, that this woman who was taken advantage of sexually by her master, although the text doesn't tell us, I think we can get there by way of implication, that if this would have been discovered, she would have been set free because you don't get to treat people that way. Isn't it funny how in this age of Me Too, we see just how relevant this obscure passage in one of the most unread books of the Bible really is. On top of that, as it is often said about many patriarchal cultures, that is essentially a culture of rape, you see that that's not true here as well. This man who takes advantage of his female bondservant is not let off the hook. It's not a little gun and wink, like, hey, you know, it happens. What are you going to do? Good, good old boy kind of club. The kind of thing that even our president has said in a way that brings shame to us as a nation. You don't see that in the Bible. This man had to go and offer a guilt offering. That's the most significant offering there is. He had to go and stand before the priest and before the people of Israel and say, I have sinned against God and against my neighbor, and here is my atoning sacrifice. Point number five, justice for the disabled. Look at verse 14 with me. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Uh, plain and simple, brothers and sisters, it is an act of oppression to treat those with disabilities with cruelty. It is an injustice. If you remember, the heart of justice is giving people what they rightly deserve. And every single human being that is an image bearer of God, which all human beings are, deserves value, assigned value. They deserve your dignity and the way you treat them, and they deserve your respect. And so to try to put something in a blind person's way to trip them up, or to try to say something nasty about a deaf person that they can't hear because they're deaf 
is an injustice because you are not giving them what they deserve. You're treating them with disrespect. You're not giving them dignity. And God hates it. Let me give you an easy modern example of how something like this might play itself out. A blind man goes to pay for some snacks at the gas station. He's got like seven bucks in snacks, you know, some honey buns, right? Some bang energy drinks. Blaine knows he gets it. And uh, the, 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 the cashier tells him, yeah, seven dollars and some change. And the guy goes to give him some money and because he's blind, he gives him a hundred dollar bill instead of a twenty dollar bill. The cashier knows the mistake that he made but he keeps the change. He keeps all that extra money. Right? That's an example of the kind of injustice that we might be talking about principally in these verses. Now, as a point of application, I think we have to say that it's not enough to merely not take advantage of the vulnerable in our midst, but we must also protect them from those who would. Now, I'm not saying in order to be a good Christian, you have to join an advocacy group for the disabled, although you are certainly welcome to do that. But what this might look like for the rest of us is actually something much simpler, more organic. Let's say you're in line behind that blind person at the grocery store, and you see what just happened between the cashier. Are you just going to say, oh, it's none of my business, you know? (laughs) Blind guy's got to learn eventually how to handle his money. And I don't want to get into a tiff with this store owner. No, friends, you don't do that. You call them out. You protect that blind person who can't protect himself in that scenario. That's what God is calling us to do. Listen to what God says in Proverbs 31, verse 8. Open your mouth for the mute. They can't open their mouth to protect themselves. You open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of all who are destitute. A common political slogan in our day is, silence is violence. And that may be true sometimes. You should definitely speak, and you're not. There are also a number of different good reasons why people may not be speaking about a matter of perceived injustice, and none of those reasons may be sinful. But friends, what we must be sure of is that when we as God's people see a clear injustice, that we must do something. We must say something. We must speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Those, those babies that are being killed every day in Huntsville, who's going to speak up for them? Can they speak for themselves? Can they cry out from inside the womb? Say, save me. I'm an image bearer of God. I'm the most vulnerable thing on this planet. You can't do this to me. No, they can't do that. So who is going to do it? It has to be us, friends. And when we do that, we are holy, even as God is holy. Because we see in the text, Psalm 103, for example, that the Lord our God works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. With my children... I not only teach my children not to bully, but I also teach them to be the ones who protect the children who are being bullied. I think that's rooted and grounded in texts like the one from this morning. Point number six, justice for the consumer. Or you can write it as economic justice. You can look at verses 35 and 36. You shall do no wrong in judgment... In measures of length or weight or quantity, you shall have just balances. 
just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I know we all know what an ephah and a hen is, so I'm not going to explain that to you guys. I don't want to patronize you. But the point here is fairly simple. For, for the vast majority of human history, transactions in the marketplace, trading, purchasing, they were all based off of measurements. Measurements of length, measurements of weight. And it was very common for traders in the market to alter their weights and their measurement devices to try and cheat the purchaser. That is unjust. You're not giving a person what they deserve. Now listen, uh, when we lived in South America, I had to get used to haggling. I'd just never done that before, you know. This, this item is for sale. It says three soles, and well, that's really just a suggestion. I'm going to go try to buy it. He's going to say, actually, it's five, and I'm going to say, well, actually, I only wanted to give you one, and we might end up somewhere in the middle, right? That's not injustice. That's always going to happen. There's always going to be buyers who want better deals and sellers who want better deals. Haggling is not the issue. The issue is, after the haggling, once we've arrived at an agreed-upon price for a fair trade, you then try to cheat me out of our agreement in some way. In the ancient world, that tended to work more along the lines of manipulated devices, but that could work itself out in your life, in your business, in your interactions with other people in society, in a bunch of other different ways. And as Christians, we just have to make sure that we are above board, that we are constantly dealing with people and giving them exactly what we agreed upon. You can also see this principle in verse 11. Look there with me. You shall not steal, and you shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Uh, I have lived in other countries that are supposedly capitalistic. They have a free market. They have an abundance of rich resources, you know, just oil and jewels and, you know, gold and everything you could ever imagine. And yet those nations were ruined by poverty. Why? Well, one of the reasons is because lying and cheating and stealing, especially in the marketplace, were tolerated. Bribery was the norm. Friends, you cannot have a productive society operating along those lines. You can have all the resources and you can claim to have, you know, the advantage of a free market and all that stuff. But if you tolerate these sins to exist in your midst, none of that will matter. I told you these were going to get quicker. Point seven, justice for the family. The heart of biblical justice, as we've said, now you're probably getting a little tired of it, but you'll at least remember it, is ensuring that people get what they deserve. So buyers and traders get what they've agreed upon. Criminals should be punished appropriately for their deeds. A crime that is too severe, excuse me, a punishment that is too severe for the crime is unjust. A punishment that's not severe enough for the crime is unjust against society and the victims. The poor should get what they deserve, a fair hearing in court, basic survival provision when they don't have it, that sort of thing. Well, that same justice, that same concept of justice applies to parents. Look at verse 3. Right at the beginning here, he says, Every one of you shall revere his, his mother and his father, and shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Friends, what, what you just need to know about this is that God is calling his people to imitate him in holiness by creating a just society according to God's rule of justice. And you cannot build a just society if you don't have justice in the home. 
Society is not this thing that exists out there in the world independent of people and other realities. Society is just a word we use to talk about a bunch of different families who have agreed to live together along similar lines. So if you allow children in the home to disrespect their parents, to be cruel to their parents, to take advantage of their parents, basically to do everything that is not revering their parents, then you will eventually have children who grow up and leave the home to be adults that make up society and have their own families and just perpetuate that same pattern of injustice. And that's why we see language so strong in Scripture about making sure that children respect and honor their parents. Listen to Deuteronomy 21. It's about a paragraph. Stay with me, though. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother... And though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the city at the gate in the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son, he is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. So he's just been completely overtaken by sin. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Now you should know that this is a, an abbreviated account. I'm assuming that there would be... Re, the, the reason why you take someone to the elders of the city is because they render the judgment. They stop and they look and they could very well tell the parents, well, actually, we don't believe you. We th- think you're just trying to get your son killed. But So there's usually a trial that takes place. But then if, if the elders agree with the parents, then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. This strikes us as just so overly severe. But that's because we don't understand holiness. We don't understand sin. We don't understand how precious of a gift our parents are. We don't understand how important the family is for society at large. Remember, God is calling himself to be, his people to be holy And one of the ways that we saw last week that capital punishment like stoning was supposed to operate in the life of the old covenant people of Israel was that it removed people from the lineage of Israel. It cut them off. It separated from the people of God. If you allow this mother and father with a son who's a drunkard and and a glutton and who disobeys and disrespects, if you allow him to go on and promote that lineage in the people of God, you can bet that if that happens more than a few times, you will begin to have a society that is not holy like God is holy. Parents, sometimes I know you may want to stone your children, rebellious teenage sons. Obviously, in the New Testament, we saw this last week, capital punishment is no longer part of our covenant system. But this principle still applies. You cannot let your children run wild. You love your children by disciplining your children. And you love society by disciplining your children can't let your kids tell you to shut up. You can't let them tell you that they're going to take out the trash whenever they're ready to take out the trash. You can't can't put them under your thumb and just be on them all the time, constantly, like the behavioral Gestapo of your home. But you do have to love them and discipline them and care for them and do what Deuteronomy 6 says. Deuteronomy 6 talks about this holistic vision of raising up your children in the ways of the Lord. I would encourage you to go back and read that this afternoon, parents, and be reminded of what God calls you to to lead in leading and loving your family. Final point, point number eight, justice for God. 
You need to know, friends, that all of this injustice towards one's neighbor ultimately flows out of a failure to love God by giving him what he deserves. I'm kind of playing fast and loose with the term justice here a little bit. I'm stretching a little bit, but I don't think, I don't think too much. Remember, justice is about giving people what they deserve. And God deserves all honor, all glory, all praise, all of our obedience, all of our time and talent and treasure, all of our lives. And so there's a sense in which it's, it's unjust of us to not give him what he deserves. You see that one example of that in verse 12. Look there with me. It says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. Right? If you, if, you, if you swear, you say, I swear by the name of my God that I'm going to do this, and then you don't do it, you lie. What you've basically done is taken God's name in vain. You've treated it like a little magical talisman. You've used it for your little hustle. You have not given it the honor and the reverence and the glory that it rightly deserves. Now, that's just one tiny manifestation of a much greater potential problem amongst God's people of just treating God casually. You see how that relates to us today? How often is it the case, brothers and sisters, that we commit injustice against God by just using Him as just a tiny little part of our lives? Not, not giving Him all the respect, all the honor, all the glory that He deserves. In closing, this sermon is an examination of the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor, at one particular point in time in the long history of God's people. Now, under the Old Covenant, in the world of the ancient Near East, those principles would have looked a very particular way. That's what Leviticus 19 is all about. But under the New Covenant, in the 21st century, in America, these principles may look similar, but they also may look very different in a number of different ways. But the eternal truths that we have learned about in this morning's text must always be at work in our hearts and our lives. Now, speaking of hearts, I have to draw your attention to just one more thing in the text. Look at me, uh, look with me at verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Now, what you notice is that I think that this chapter itself is a bit of a chiasm which means there's ideas, and then there's this other idea, and then there's a reversion. What you notice is that in this verse, we are basically in the middle of the chapter. And so it could be argued that this command in the middle of the chapter is actually the main command of the chapter, given its chiastic structure. The main command is that you don't hate your brother. It's a false dichotomy, friends, to say that Christians should only focus on the hearts of men to the neglect of systems and structures. But it is also an error to focus on structures and systems without realizing that it is the wicked heart of men that produces these evil practices in our midst. If we focus on systems and structures and laws to the neglect of the heart, our work is in vain. If the sin of American evangelicalism of the past was that they only focused on 
individuals. They only worried about preaching the gospel to the neglect of, you know, civil, civil law and other things like that. Well, then I fear, brothers and sisters, that we may be facing the opposite danger today. I fear that many young Christians with a right attitude about justice, they want to pursue justice, they want to be just, they want to see a just society. I fear that a lot of these young Christians will end up replacing the Great Commission with political activism. I fear that because I see it. I fear that because I have seen it. If you've seen the second edition of the American Gospel, one of the guys on there, Tony Campolo, he says it outright. He says, I went from trying to lead my friends to Jesus to being a champion of social justice, and then pretty soon I only cared about social justice and I left Jesus behind. I'm afraid because I, I've seen it happen with my friends. Friends, we used to go out and evangelize, and now they just won't talk about Jesus anymore. They don't want to share the gospel with people. They just want to fix this broken system. But friends, you can, do all, you can, try, you can change all the laws and try to put all the systems in the world right, but if you don't change people's hearts, none of that will matter. It's not going to have any soil to grow in. There's not going to be any ability for those just systems to root themselves down into. Politics is an outflow of the cultural conscience of the individuals of society. So if you try to take political action without fixing the heart of the members of that society, you will find no great long-term success. And in the end, you may end up doing more harm than good. The only hope for a just society is a society in which the members of that society have themselves been justified. Your love for your neighbor flows out of your love for God. And a people who have not known the love of God will not be able to love their neighbor as they should. A people who have not been justified in God's presence will not be able to live out lives of justice. So, brothers and sisters, do you want this city, this country, this world to be a fountain of justice whose waters roll down like a mighty river? If so, then your first priority should be the salvation of your neighbors. Tell them that they are by nature unjust. Tell them that they deserve the wrath of a just and righteous God. And then tell them that the only righteous man to have ever lived is Jesus. And that he came to earth to die in your place because you could never pay the price for your unrighteousness. And then beckon them to leave the darkness of this fallen world and to enter into the light of God's righteousness through repentance and faith. And then call them to put off all the old deeds of the flesh if they are really in Christ and to put on righteousness and to walk in the way of their Savior. Brothers and sisters, let the preaching of the gospel be your first priority. Let it be your all-consuming passion. Let it infuse all that you say and do, including your political action, if the Lord calls you to that. Let the gospel be central in your vision of justice and resolve like the Apostle Paul to know nothing in this world except Christ and Christ crucified. Let's pray.